Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, the safe space created for Black women by Black women to strip away the taboo of talking about mental health. You'll hear from mental health professionals and advocates as well as Black women sharing their experiences as we break down the complexities, explore ways to heal, and support each other. My name is Ashley, I'm your host. Whether you're a seasoned regular or this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into today's episode. Right, everyone welcome to another episode of black girls have anxiety too um, this is a really exciting day uh, for two reasons the first is dr stevens is back so i know it's been a while um, if you've been listening to this to the show we've had a little bit of a lull in episodes i had to take a little break but we are back dr son stevens is back she is a licensed psychologist um, she is a black girls have anxiety too veteran and regular um, on the podcast. Um, and then just a little bit of background for anybody anybody that doesn't know Dr. Stevens. Um, she's got a PhD. She's the program director and founder of Ultimate Thinking Psychological Consultants. Um, she's the co-founder of Standing in the Gap Community Development Corporation. And I'm sure there's probably a longer list. So Dr. <laughs> Dr. Stevens, do you want to um, just kind of tell anybody that hasn't met you before a little bit about you? So I think in terms of the only thing that I will add is that, you know, certainly my um, passion in life has always been to work with children, adolescents, and actually individuals with severe mental illness. And that's an area that I've weaved in certainly my pra practical work and my research work and certainly my volunteer work. And so um, in everything that I do, I continue to uh, see that thread that resonates through those different areas. So thank you for highlighting. Yes. Thank you for always being open to coming back on the show and just sharing this space with me and um, giving out knowledge. And yeah, I just think you bring like so much good energy to the show. So that is um, the first great thing. The second is that today we are officially starting to record with Bullhorn. So you can't uh, see this see this episode live. But this is going to be a feature that we're going to be rolling out. So if you're not following uh, Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 on Instagram, go ahead and uh, click over to Instagram. Follow us now. It's at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. Um, keep an eye out for notifications about future episodes where we will be uh, filming live and we'll be sending out the link for you to go ahead and join us. Bullhorn is really awesome. There's uh, great call-in features. There's chat features. There's question features. So you can actually be here with us um, and ask all of your questions um, and get to know us a little bit more. We can get to know you guys. Uh, but this is, yeah, just a super exciting time for us. Um, if you're on your phone, go ahead and download Bullhorn um, from your app store, Apple store, whichever store you buy your apps from. Um, Bullhorn is going to be the Bullhorn app with, it's a little orange app with a little, uh, Bullhorn on it. So, um, I'll also throw the link into the description, but yeah, so lots of exciting things to come with Black Girls Have Anxiety too. We are kind of revamping and looking at this like a second season. Um, so this is really exciting for all of us. Uh, so for today, for this episode, Shout out to Dr. Stevens. So she came up with, uh, she threw me a few topics a couple weeks ago. And um, one that I really wanted to dive into first was uh, dealing with rejection and neglect. 
So um, that's one that hadn't crossed my mind before, but as soon as I saw it, I was like, this is one that we have to do because nobody really talks about this. So um, that's kind of what we'll be talking about today. There is um, a new segment that we'll be rolling out. I won't tell you what it is, but it'll be in the middle of the show um, and it will be interactive. So if you're following on Spotify, I believe you'll see the question pop up. You'll have a chance to throw in your answer and who knows, maybe I'll post it on Instagram and shout you out. Um, but yeah, so just hang tight. This is going to be a fun episode as usual. Um, Dr. Stevens, um, uh, before we dive in, do you have anything new going on? Cause I know like last year you were like into helping with studies and mm-hmm. doing lots of different great things. So can you get, tell us like what you're up to nowadays? That's a good question. So actually I am, am expanding my research into you know, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, in terms of working with actually teens with se- uh, severe mental illness, I've, um, I'm have i spearheading a study with a few students at Governor State University, as well as some students at Bethune-Cookman University, which is a historically black, black university here in Daytona Beach. And so we're um, proposing um, a study where we are understanding how or the ways in which we can culturally ad- adapt traditional um, interventions for trauma in order to more effectively work with Black parents and their children. And so this is a study that, um, well, we're going to start a pilot study um, this summer that will be by coastal, so in Daytona and Chicago. And then um, from that, we'll take what we learn and gain in order to apply that to our larger general study, where we're going to be aiming for maybe about 100, 100 or 100 or 50 so um, individuals, but that's pretty much what we're working on right now. So I'm really excited about that research. We're actually gonna have an opportunity to present that at the Midwestern Psychological Association. Um, that um, actually is in April, which is about a month from now. And then also at the American Psychological Association, which is actually in location, which I can't remember where, I think it's somewhere up north and cold, but um, in, in August, so it should be warm by then, but I'm excited about that opportunity. Yes, of course. I I always, I'm always curious about what else you're doing in addition to just like, just doing all of the awesome things. I think that's just awesome that you're also in involved in, in studies and particularly at a historically black college. So that is amazing. Clap it up for Dr. Stevens. Um, Every time I talk to you, there's new things on the horizon. So I'm really excited. If there's any way we can support you, um, let me know. I'm always happy to, to help. Um, so let's get into uh, the topic of the day, the mm-hmm. first one. So rejection. Uh, I think everybody's got an idea of what rejection is, um, how they've experienced or interpreted rejection. If you're listening, ladies, um, Throw into the chat what you think, like what's your definition of rejection? Um, and then Dr. Stevens, how would you kind of define rejection in, in your words? So typically rejection is, well, if we think about it in terms of the context of socialization, it's, it's typically an individual or just a being who desires for some form of social intimacy. It could be certainly superficial or certainly uh, much deeper. But in their efforts toward connecting with others, they are um, disallowed 
for various reasons from being a part of that group or being a part of that association. And so if we think about social rejection in that very general sense, we see that humans and animals experience rejection. So that's the simple answer. You're frozen. Oh, Dr. Stevens, you froze a little bit. You froze for about 10 seconds. Yeah. Okay, but I'm back now, okay. right? You're back now, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Technical difficulties, it's okay. <laughs> so, All right, so you my answer, I'm sorry. I only heard the first half of it. So if you could um, say it one more time, that would be great. Oh, Chris. So when we think about rejection, um, and I think it's important to think about it in the context of socialization, is when um, an individual being seek, seeks out some type of social association with another. Right. And certainly it can um, span like different levels of intimacy. But in that effort to connect, associate with another, those efforts are thwarted directly or indirectly. And certainly the psychological or an emotional pain that we feel, that's rejection. Wow. I love that. I mean, that's a that's a great, great definition. And then Shantae in the comments says, um, for her, rejection is when an un when an expected outcome isn't met with an emotional connection investment specifically. Thank you, Shante. Um, so when it comes to rejection, like what's an example of, I guess, just in somebody's life, especially early on, like what's one of the first times we could potentially experience rejection? That's a really excellent question because I've been thinking a lot about that, especially over the pandemic, um, you know, and of course, working with one of my um, earlier research groups, working with babies, right? One of the first things that babies experience is connection straight out of the womb, right? They form connections with their primary caregivers, whether it be their moms or dads, you know, whoever. Um, and certainly that connection tells them that they're wanted, loved, and, and accepted. Those are very important developmental markers emotionally and socially and physically for children. And so over the first, typically first two years, they're with their primary care, caregivers or with trusted others. And certainly they feel that acceptance throughout those first two years of life. But guess what? Right around the age of three, depending on um, maybe the social class or, or work status of, of their parents or their caregivers, I should say, they go to daycare or a little bit later preschool. And so what happens is that they are around other children. And when they're around other children, sometimes what happens is that those quirky um, bits about, you know, a child that parents love and adore, caregivers love and adore, children tend to not <laughs> like. And right. certainly, and so what happens is that maybe they're not invited to be, um, to, to swing on the swings, to, um, I'm trying to remember all the <laughs> little, um, like sitting at lunch with, with people and with right, go to monkey bars together, you know, yeah. or like, right, exactly, go to birthday parties, you know, so yeah. that's a much larger form of like rejection. But it certainly happens immediately when children are asked to be part of a group or not allowed to be a part of a group, whether it's on the playground or certainly in the classrooms or much larger, when certainly the rejection is a lot more um, discernible when all the children get birthday cards except for one child. Yeah. And so for a three-year-old, it's very hard for them to process this. Yeah. Because again, remember the first two or first three years of their life, they've accepted 
widespread or they've um, experienced widespread acceptance and love and unconditional love. And when they start to see and notice that who they are on the inside is not necessarily matching what's on the outside, it starts to create for some children um, a bit of dissension. So like where those cells aren't necessarily aligning. And I will necessarily, I will say something that that's one of the first times but it's not necessarily memorable for children in terms of when they start to really develop long-lasting memories around five or six years old. That's when the rejection really starts to sink. Okay. You know, like unless it's perpetual at three years old, where everywhere they go, they experience so much difficulty, you know, bonding associated with other children. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily start to resonate until five or six years old when they start to see these themes. I know for me, like when I was little, I think that my first memory of rejection was, I think I was four because I was still in preschool and my mom had a, you know, was going to throw me a birthday party and no one showed up. (laughs) And I remember, I mean, I was so hurt and like, dang, I guess nobody really likes me. Nobody is really my friend. But also I saw my mom's reaction, which was like, Mm -hmm. I'm never throwing your birthday party again. Nobody showed up. I did, you Mm -hmm. know, all these things. And I just remember feeling like I'm, I just don't ever want to have a birthday party. I didn't have another one, another birthday party till I was 18. Cause I was just like extra hurt. <laughs> Cause I was right. just like, I'm not, I'm not going to even subject myself to that level of rejection. I don't, I just feel like I never remember, I never forgot about that moment. Um, but yeah, ladies in the comments, like, um, when was the first time that you guys experienced rejection? If you want to share. Um, and if you want, you can use the call-in feature. If you want to call in and say it, or if you just want to throw it in the chat. We're just testing everything today, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that first, that birthday party where nobody showed up, it just, it sucked. Right, <laughs> exactly. And that's case in point when... So you've had you had that experience of where you and your mom actually extended yourself in such an outward and demonstrative way and not to have that love and affection reflected back to you. Yeah. And it's hard not to personalize that because with a birthday party, that's exactly what we do. It feels very personal to us. Yeah, definitely. Um, Let's see. Ladies, I'll give you a chance if you want to talk a little bit about your first experience with the rejection, um, or if you want to call in, either way is cool with me. Um, so Dr. Stevens, I, I know you mentioned there could be instances where during that typical point in childhood where, you know, before you kind of get thrown out into the real world or AKA preschool, um, and right, and you're ideally surrounded with love and affection, and you're not experience, experiencing rejection. Is there a like? Is there examples of when children are within that early age range and they are experiencing rejection? And if so, how does that affect them as they go through childhood? That's another excellent question. Because actually, like that brought up like so many, like three different branches <laughs> that could possibly happen. So where a child is rejected. So, for example, like we talked a little bit earlier about how um, the, the bond between a child 
an infant when they're immediately born, right? A newborn and a caregiver, right? That's called the attachment bond. And that attachment bond is essential. We don't necessarily think so, but it's so essential in terms of how that bond is fostered throughout the child's first year of life and that it develops in terms of, and, and it, it speaks to how that child sees themselves, how they see others, how they approach problems. This is what we call attachment styles. You know, and so I think in a larger popular culture, we've talked about in terms of the attachment styles respect to relationship, but it has such a much more um, foundational understanding in terms of social emotional development. Yeah. And so what happens certainly with children who don't necessarily um, experience the idealized forms of unconditional love and acceptance, they will experience rejection, right? So for example, let's say over the first couple of years, first year, first couple of years of life, where parents, um, certainly not the healthiest, certainly in this case, but where, let's say, one of the more important trust experiences where a child learns to walk, right? Because remember that this is a time, well, the period, first two years of life is a period marked by the most frequent and stark changes developmentally all around for children. And so they're still, they're testing their legs, so to speak, literally. And so there's a lot of doubt about themselves. And so what happens, and again, in an idealized situation, the parents are encouraging the child. The parents, you know, allow them just enough space to allow them to operate independently, but not enough space to where they feel where they're, they're, the, the parent of caregiver may um, fail them. So let's say in this case, right, the child decides to, okay, I feel good. I feel really positive about my environment. They start to take a a step right and so of course when a child takes a step or when they stand they want somebody there to catch them because again that's a part of the trust that we develop that's innate mm-hmm. and so what happens if a parent excuse me i keep saying parent but a caregiver pulls away the caregiver pulls away and a child over time is like wait but this is challenging my concept and my understanding of what trust is and it happens repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again and what happens for the child they start they stop trying because again this is a form of rejection i've extended myself and i've extended myself in terms of i've understood non-verbally that this environment is safe but the actions belie that Hmm. Or let's say in another example at two years old, where another um, major developmental milestone is potty training, right? Mm-hmm. So in the idealized or healthy, I should say, excuse me, in a healthier household, a child is told, you know, good job, you know, every time they go to the pot, anytime maybe they point at the pot, anytime maybe they point at their um, diaper that's dirty, you know, or and so these children are certainly reinforced, right? But if a child is told over and over that that's dirty. Don't do that, you know, or they're giving like negative messages. That's another form of uh, rejection. And so what happens is that some children start to experience shame and guilt associated with certain tasks, certain developmental. Well, it starts with developmental tasks, but it generalizes to other tasks. And so these major developmental milestones that seem so very normal in terms of crawling, walking, sitting up, standing, toileting, um, running, skipping, all these things, riding a bicycle, right, happens a little bit later. But these are all very important major developmental milestones that are so 
deeply ingrained in terms of our society, in terms of helping to shape who we are and how we see ourselves and how we experience others. And when we don't necessarily experience the acceptance, the unconditional love and acceptance that um, occurs and maybe in a healthier household, children start to internalize that doubt, that shame, that guilt, the fear of rejection, or more so, I know another part of our topic, is neglect in the sense of believing that no one, nothing will ever help. Mm. Yes, we're going to get into a little bit more into neglect later, but I know that um, Aloria is uh, on the line, so let me let her in really quickly. Hey, Aloria. Hi, hi, hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Um, so okay, awesome. Well, uh, well, the reason I called in was because I was trying to type it out, but I couldn't really articulate it properly. But I was gonna say about um, the first time I felt rejection, I honestly could not think of anything, and I know that I've had the feeling of rejection many, 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 many times. And I was curious to know: is that something that people block out? Um, over time or, or what, because I know that I have felt serious because I, the, the feelings of the rejection remains, but the memory of the stimulus does not. Hmm. That's I think a great question. That really is, Gloria. That's really perfect as an example of, of what happens, right? So a lot of times, and especially in terms of um, how it's embedded in our memory, in terms of, you know, I think it's a couple of pieces, but um, rejection is very, it, it, it actually, it activates the pain neuroreceptors in the brain. So it mm-hmm. feels like when we experience like physical pain, the rejection, the emotional pain that we feel, it activates the same um, part of that brain. But it also, in terms of what Aluria's um, question regarding in terms of remembering the emotional component of it, 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 it embeds, is embedded in what we call the amygdala. And I think we talked about it on the show before in terms of that part of the brain um, that's nestled right next to the hippocampus for long-term memory. And so the hippocampus is here and then the amygdala is uh, nestled right there. And the amygdala is responsible for defensive responding, typically in terms of anger and then fear. And so it's so deeply encoded, meaning that it is... Uh, so innately remembered that anytime we experience anything that closely aligns with that experience, it could maybe be, let's say if something bad happened, it was a bright, sunny day. When we see that, everything else could be okay. But if we see that because it's so deeply encoded, it gets activated. And But again, but in terms of the actual experience that happens in the uh, frontal part of our brain, those details get lost and certainly the day-to-day in terms of just the decay of our memory but Mm. the emotional component the pain component and then the emotional pain associated with memory are what's deeply encoded yep because that's that's literally where i am um in that in that regard because i'm like dang, I know I felt it before. And mm-hmm. I was really sitting here racking my brain. I'm like, I know for a fact that I felt rejection before, but remembering the actual events that caused it mm-hmm. um, is, is 
it's impossible. I really cannot think of a single incident, especially early on in life. Like maybe right. fast forward into the, the the most recent five years and maybe okay, but like in the beginning, and I know for a fact that I feel the, like I still feel the pain. Like I can still feel it, and I can still feel the the moment that it happened, and like you said, the hurt um, behind it, and mm -hmm. the I guess the ensuing trauma responses that resulted in that first uh, that first uh, feeling of rejection. But mm -hmm. I cannot actually remember the actual moment which is crazy but thank you for letting me know that i'm not that crazy <laughs> well and and again just to normalize your experience i i think that's the protective part of our brain the beauty of, of our brain in terms of protecting us from things that are harmful so mm -hmm. it's going yeah. to always block out those things that it can it's part of the evolutionary um development in terms of, of promoting this, the, the likelihood of survival, right? Because if you remember those specific components, <clears throat> any of those components can certainly um, implicate the way in which we go about life. And so our brain is always aiming for it toward increasing the likelihood of survival and not just survival in terms of the bare minimum, but to maximize our survival. Yeah. So I think that's another possible explanation in terms of why you may not be able to remember the details. Yes. Well, thank you, Lori. I'm going to thank you so much for the question. Um, I appreciate it. Thank you. Go ahead. And if you have any other questions, like let us know. Um, and thanks for being here. I appreciate thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I felt like thank I cut you. her off, but it's okay. <laughs> um, so thank you, Dr. Stevens. That was actually one of the questions I had for you. So I love that we just uh, hopped straight into like where rejection happens in the brain. Does it stick with you? Um, at, even if, even when you don't recall, like Aloria said, when you don't recall the actual memories, but it's still kind of imprinted or in your, in your brain. So mm -hmm. um, that's very interesting, but it definitely, it makes sense. Like your brain is going like this to protect you from the things that made you feel terrible. Um, but the, the terrible feeling is still somewhere in there hiding. Um, mm -hmm. So I was reading a little bit about rejection and I know that there were uh, some specific kind of uh, specific types of rejection mentioned across several different articles and platforms. And they were real rejection, anticipated rejection, remembered rejection and imagined rejection. So the one that piqued my curiosity the most was imagined rejection. So I, because that was one of the questions that kept going through my head. It's like, I wonder if there are times in life when we are feeling really rejected from our perspective, but maybe from another person's perspective or from what's actually happening, there is no real rejection taking place. It's just our perception of that event. So can you talk a little bit about imagined rejection? Very much so. So when we think about um, like these different forms of rejection, you know, so they're one based on our experience. But if we go back to this idea of like your real self, right, in terms of who you actually are, like if there was a way for us to measure to see who you truly are without necessarily the biases of yourself or others, right, versus your idealized self, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idealized self is the self that we project to others. And so when we think about that in terms of 
who who we think we are, right? Versus like what like what we present to others. And so what happens is that um, I guess through different iterations of like various different experiences, we sometimes um, put ourselves in our own fable, right? In our own play. And so like with every, with like <laughs> what happens with teenagers, we experience what we call like an imaginary audience, right? So the imaginary, you know, sort of for adolescents, it's more so this great dramatic um, play where everybody's watching their every move and everybody's so invested. I mean, it's very much what's happening in social media, right? <laughs> but, you know, this idea of where everything that I could do is broadcasted. And so there's a make or break moment with every single thing that I do. And so when we think about the imagined rejection, right? And so that happens on a smaller scale for people who have progressed through that developmental milestone, right? So, I mean, something can happen very much for teenagers, happen very much for children, but let's say for um, adults who have traversed through that experience. So what happens is that based on some of those previous experiences, they start to <laughs> project what may happen based on their previous experiences. And so based on those previous experiences, I mean, it's part of like educated hypothesis guessing is also partly um, protection measures. But before we experience the actual rejection, we suddenly project and think about ways in which we have been rejected in the, in the past. And so we start to again, more so project what may happen in the future. Right. So just kind of guessing our brain kind of guessing that we're probably going to be rejected in this situation as well, because we've been rejected 10 other times before. Very much so. Yeah. And again, it doesn't necessarily may not match the real experience, right? Mm -hmm. More often than not. And certainly that's our, that that's our job. And certainly as friends and certainly therapists in terms of mental health helpers in order to, to challenge people to really think about, what would this be like if you were to step into this experience for the first time again? Well, actually, for this first this experience for the first time, because this is a new experience in terms of those experiences that you've had in the past that shaped you. Mm -hmm. And you're indelibly different now by virtue of being experiencing those other challenges. Yeah. And so when we enter or, or, or when we um, initiate maybe a new interaction where there's a real, or excuse me, an imagined rejection, just by virtue of thinking about that, of entering the experience, we're different. And so I think that that hopefully gives people courage to step into those experiences where there may be the perception of rejection right. and to allow themselves to flourish possibly and experience them honestly maybe completely different 180 degrees different than the experience prior to so so dr stevens if if i am a person that is experiencing kind of this imagined rejection and let's say i'm in therapy what are some pieces of advice that a you know a mental health helper by the way i love that term i'm going to start using that um or let's say you're a psychologist or your therapist that you're working with like what are some tools that they would give you to stop imagining this rejection based on your past experiences? So I think there's a couple of things. So one would be to actually go back through the experience, right? Where you remember the first rejection. 
So if you can remember the first details, like for example, like the example that you talked about a little bit earlier, Miss Ashley, in terms of like we actually have you go through and talk about that experience and then assign what we call like a size level, right? The the levels of distress mm. or the units of distress. And so we assign that and then we use like different relaxation measures, um, excuse me, uh, practices, whether maybe deep breathing, imagined um, like guided imagery, any number of, of, of um, relaxation strategies in order to help the person process through that rejection if it's very uh, anxiety or dis- distress producing, right? But if not, so we'll just uh, process through that and talk about how that it made you feel then and now, right? And so we start to add context to it, right? So for example, let's say like with your birthday party, right? Could I use that as an example? Yeah, we can use it. So, you know, certainly, okay. All right, so let's just say, well, what? And of course, I don't necessarily know all the details, but let's just say part of the details that you mailed them, right? Mm -hmm. You mailed them and this, and who knows what happened to the mail person who took the mail from your house, right? Maybe certainly they had an accident. Maybe there was delay, you know, perhaps X, Y, Z. Okay. All right. Well, well, okay. Let's also, let's think about where was your house located? Was your house hard to find? Mm-hmm. You know? And certainly, so we talk about, in, and, and again, like I said, I'm just using very random examples, you know, but certainly, but this is more so examples that we use that are relevant to your actual experience in order to help to add context to it. And so by adding that context to it, guess what? We depersonalize that situation. We right. depersonalize the rejection. To say, oh my gosh, it really wasn't about me, you know? Or let's say if there was some tip amongst the parents that you didn't know about that certainly you wouldn't know about at 10 years old. But maybe there's like likely to happen, especially nowadays. There <laughs> might be tip among parents, right? And so part of the social ostracism that happens, my child is not gonna play with your child. Right. So as 10 year olds or even nine year olds or however old, we're not necessarily privy to that level of of, of insight socially, because that's a much more mature form of social insight that children haven't developed at 10 years old. And so part of that processing is what we do, right? And so you use that experience, okay. All right, so let's think about readily um, accessible examples of things that you've uh, things that you've done. Okay, all right, let's think about it. So you've applied to XYZ job, and guess what? You use those same skills here, 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 that didn't necessarily seem to benefit you at 10 years old, but you learn how to certainly use those skills to your own benefit. Oh, you're right, Dr. Stevens. Let's think about this. Here's another example. Here's another example. Here's another example. So showing through successful, successful, excuse me, successive approximation and certainly through successful experiences where a person was able to certainly maximize their um, outcome based on these perceived um slights or or, or 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 character flaws or, or pieces that they thought um or that they attributed to their rejection and identifying ways in which they were able to um use those experiences and and use those character traits in order to maximize their experiences or maximize experiences in a positive way does that make sense i, I might be talking in the circles a little bit so i apologize about that no that definitely makes sense i think just I think what I really took from that is that it's like you said, it's not always about you and maybe it it wasn't about you. Maybe, maybe like this much of it was about you and the other 80% of it 
had to do with a million other variables. Like maybe another kid had a birthday that weekend. Maybe, you know, the teacher didn't give out the invitations. I mean, there are, and I guess I've never really thought about any, any other variables that could have happened. All I, you know, little Ashley um, at the time was just like, nobody wanted to come to my birthday party and, but y'all are smiling in my face at preschool. So what is that? Right, right, right. Exactly. Very much so. Yeah. But I, I do want to touch on something that you mentioned um, specifically around uh, careers and how um, I want to talk a little bit about rejection and how rejection and pursuing a career or just finding a job nowadays can can meet. Um, I know with the, so Dr. Stevens shared a really interesting article from the Lily uh, with me. I'm actually going to post it in the, the description and I've got a million articles here that I've read, that I'm, <laughs> that I've researched, but let me see. Um, okay. So one of the articles that I found from that one is everyone gets uh, rejected. Here's what our readers found from their toughest one. So the Lily basically, um, I guess a few years ago, there was a Twitter thread where a bunch of people on Twitter were talking about how they've been rejected specifically within their careers. Um, and some of them talked about just the rejection and some of them talked about kind of the perseverance, perseverance and what happened, you know, years later, months later, um, either with the same person that rejected them with uh, them or maybe somebody else. But um, I, so I'm going to throw out a quote and then I want to talk a little bit about uh, rejection specifically when it comes to career. So one of the quotes from the article was behind each success you see from others is a slew of rejections too. So I think for a lot of people, especially um I don't want to break it down to a certain age group because I think especially with 2020, a lot of people are feeling the, you know, if you're, if you've moved around in your job, whether it be because you've been forced to move around um, and find a new job or a new career, or you've made a conscious choice to do so. Um, I know for me, the past year and a half, I've been looking for new jobs actually since 2020 um, I finally got a new job beginning of this year. Yay. But it, there was a lot of rejection that happened and um, it was, it was really hard at first. I mean, I, I think the first six months of 2020, I had sent out, I don't know, probably like 70, 75 different applications and I had one callback, um, just one. And so it was really disheartening for me. And it dealing with the rejection, but also, you know, you compound the rejection with like, am I good enough? Am I worthy enough to get these jobs? Is there some other factor that I'm not realizing that I'm in control of that I can change to get these jobs? But overall, it just kind of makes you feel like crap, you know, like you're, you're putting your full self forward. Um, there's a lot of effort behind it. And then, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard to just keep going. So I want to talk a little bit about like the effects of rejection specifically when it comes to like job hunting. So I think that that's a really great example in terms of how a lot of people experience rejection sometimes for the first time in their lives. Right. <laughs> so yeah. they've been um, conditioned to be in um, um, different social experience, like it's different uh, social 
groups where everything that they do is accepted and lauded. And so one of the first times, and actually this happened quite a bit um, with a lot of the um, undergraduates that I worked with at a close uh, to an Ivy League university. And so this this um, university, uh, the students from this university, they often, <laughs> whenever they would apply for different um, employers, they would apply for these different employers um, and put their best foot forward. And the employers were not really impressed with their um, accomplishments. Well, not necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily say that, I'm sorry, but in terms of like their accomplishments, yes, but in terms of how they went about um, um, interviewing. And so for, for them, it was very disconcerting in terms of how is it that, again, the accomplishments that I see here that are presented on my CV or my resume are not necessarily meshing up with what's being presented here in the interview. And I should be a shoo-in for this um, job position. And so when that outcome didn't necessarily merit or, 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 or when the experience didn't necessarily merit the outcome that the person was expecting, it led to, in terms of our um, topic today, a great deal of rejection. And I think that happens in large part for a lot of individuals, right? Where they put, this, put their best foot forward, they work and they polish their resume, um, perhaps invest in, um, well, I guess maybe especially pre-pandemic, um, a lot of outward appearance in terms of like their clothing and certainly hairstyles and, and all of X, Y, Z. And sometimes we even invest in buying or, or, or purchasing or renting our time with an executive coach in order to make sure that we interview well. And so we invest all of this time and energy and it doesn't necessarily merit the outcome that we deem it should. And that can certainly be very disconcerting and certainly very upsetting. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think specifically for, I know you mentioned, um, undergrads uh, moving on in, into the, the job search world, I think that's probably one of the hardest things is when you leave university and everything is really graded. Everything is graded. So for you, you get an A plus, an A minus. You're like, yeah, I'm doing great. I have a good GPA. I've got references. And it can be really, uh, I don't know the word, but you kind of have been getting a high five in school your whole life. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you've been told like your high five, whether it be in the form of an A, whether it be in the form of like positive feedback from your teachers, um, that that's, that's really all you need. Um, mm -hmm. Nobody really talks about, I mean, there are definitely schools out there that give, you know, interview skills, course, you know, classes, but you leave college with the expectation, like I finally got this degree and now it's time for me to enter the real world. And, you know, life is just going to continue going up. And like, this is what I have been told that I deserve in college. And mm -hmm. I know for me, um, when I left college, when I finally entered the professional world, it took me, it took me a little while to kind of get settled and figure out, okay, well, I'm actually going up against a lot of competition of people that have been in the job. Um, market for a long time and have more experience. And so I have to humble myself a little bit and realize where I'm coming from and also who, who I'm in essence, like competing against for these positions um, and understand that 
you know, I may not get every single job that I apply for. I may not get a lot of the jobs that I apply for. Mm-hmm. Um, and for s- some of those reasons I have control over and some of them I don't. Um, but I think that the, just going back to the quote that I mentioned earlier, specifically for anybody that's listening, whether you're graduating college and you're entering the professional world or whether you are just a person trying to adult <laughs> and maybe you're transitioning from one career to the next or trying to move forward in your career, um, like the quote said, just behind each success, there are a ton of rejections. So that person that you may be looking at, whether it's a friend or maybe it's somebody, you know, a professional that you look up to, your mentor, they also experienced a lot of re- rejection before they were able to get to where they're going. And I think, I wish that people would talk about that more. Mm-hmm. I wish that people would talk about all of the no's that you experience because mm-hmm. especially with social media, everything seems like it was just an easy check mark and people just move forward when I think we all know that's not how the real world works. So um, if anybody out there just, I think there's a lot of perseverance, um, but I think the sting of rejection gets less and less the more it happens. Um, And I don't know if that has to do with the brain being able to process it better over time because you have experienced it and Mm -hmm. persevered through it. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's just like pushing yourself and understanding that sometimes it is you, sometimes it's not you, sometimes it's a combination. Um, But yeah, I think... I think for me personally, rejection, even though it's, it stings and it's like a sour punch to the mouth sometimes, I think for me, it has made me go back and get better at whatever I'm trying to do. Um, and I think that's the part like we have to remember is like, mm-hmm. sometimes that is just, for me, it's the universe saying, hey, go back, polish this up. Maybe you weren't supposed to be there. I remember mm-hmm. the, the job I actually interviewed for in 2020 I wanted that job so bad. I had done so much research. I thought I had done really well in the interviews. I thought everything was on up and up. Um, it was actually for like a, a tourism company specifically, you know, for kind of connecting people from America to Africa. So I was ecstatic about this. Um, and I didn't get it. And I was just bummed. I didn't get it. And I found out probably late February, 2020. So that's also when everything started to ramp up. And then I realized about a month or so later, like had I gotten that job, I would have been let go because the travel industry was pretty much destroyed mm-hmm. during that that whole time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that everything is going to have this ultra bright side, but for me, it helps to kind of look at, okay, this didn't happen, but maybe I actually dodged a bullet because mm-hmm. I would have been stuck with no job. So, um, yeah, just, you know, keep pushing in, in those terms of, of rejection. Like it's not, it's going to keep happening Very in terms of capacity. Um, and it's exactly like you said, this rejection over and over and over, it becomes a conditioned response. And the more that we per- persevere through those, the more attainable, the more dis- uh, uh, discernible, the more digestible that experiences, that it, those experiences are. Because yeah. again, it's not necessarily associated with this very negative outcome, you know, maybe a long period of sadness because we've picked ourselves back up and we're ready to go and hit the ground running again. So I think that's a great example. 
you know, what we need to do in yeah. experience rejection. Thank you, Dr. Stevens. <laughs> so we are going to take a quick, um, not break, but we're going to hop into our new segment. Um, shout out to Shantae and Aloria who are in the chat today. Um, but we have a new segment called Mind Games. So um, for the Mind Games segment, segment of each episode, we are going, well, I'm going to be describing a mental disorder or something to do with mental health. And it's up to you, the listener, to guess what it is. So um, I'm going to basically read the definition and then you'll have a chance if you're on Spotify or if, you know, you hop into a live stream, you'll be able to answer live. Um, I don't have any prizes for you. I'll give you a high five virtually, but <laughs> I'm going to basically read a definition. Um, you get to guess what it is. And then I'll give you a little bit of time to think about it or Google it. Um, and then I'll, I'll tell you what it is. So we're going to hop into it. So I'm going to read the the mental disorder, uh, definition of it. And then it's up to you guys to guess. For those of you that are here live, um, feel free to guess in the chat, throw your ideas out there. Um, all right. So the first official mind game segment definition is a cultural sy uh, syndrome in the DSM-5 is blank or thinking too much. It is found among the Shona people of Zimbabwe. In many cultures, thinking too much is considered to be damaging to the mind and body, causing specific symptoms like headaches and dizziness. Blank involves ruminating on upset thought, upsetting thoughts, particularly worries. As a cultural expression, it is consi considered to be a causative, uh, to be causative to anxiety, depression, and somatic problems. For example, my heart is painful because I think too much. As an idiom, it is indicative of, an, of interpersonal and social difficulties. Uh, thinking too much, in air quotes, is a common idiom of distress and cultural explanation across many countries and ethnic groups, including Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, um, East Asian, and Native American groups. So... Does anybody want to guess? I'll give you about 10 more seconds to guess what this mental, what the name of this mental disorder is. I probably need some music in this section. So maybe I'll add the next <laughs> So um, if you're at home guessing, uh, this is your, I'll give you a couple more seconds. Now, the name of this mental disorder is called, um, I may mess up the, the uh, pronunciation, but it's called Kofungisisa. Kofungisisa. So I'll spell it out. K-U-F-U-N-G-I-S-I-S-A. Kofungisisa. So it is um, a cultural syndrome specifically found among the, among the Shona people of Zimbabwe and is equated to thinking too much. So learn something new. Um, and that is actually from an article called 10 Rare Mental Health Conditions You Probably Haven't Heard Of uh, by, um, uh, published by the Concordia St. Paul University. So um, yes, yeah, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Stevens, have you ever, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of it. 
because you're you. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, that was pretty interesting. Uh, found that when I was looking around. Um, have you like had any experience with with that, or does that is that a common uh, diagnosis? Well, that's not not a very common diagnosis, um, but I have certainly encountered the um, that disorder um, more so didactically um, in the DSM. We have a list of cultural syndromes, um, and certainly these syndromes um, define like some of the typical symptoms and the group who experiences, um, or, or more so, like where the um, the group that typically experiences those problems. And so that's typically been um, this in the back of the DSM in the most uh, recent iteration of the DSM 5TR, which actually came out about a week ago, they're actually integrating it into the actual DSM. So I'm excited to see that more so, you know, in terms of oh. and not just like those like specific cultural syndromes, but more so in terms of the cultural considerations, thinking about cultural considerations. And so I think that perhaps we'll see more integration of some of these less off-use medical um, and psychological disorders. Oh, very cool. I did not know that there was a new version that just got released. And I did not know that there was going to be more um, consideration for culture in there. So that's really great to hear. I feel like that's progress. Yes. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I guess it depends on who's doing it. So <laughs> that, that is true. <laughs> that is true. Multiple variables. But I guess you know, we'll, we'll start out with the attention is good. So we'll see where right. it goes. <laughs> we'll see where it goes when you open up the, the, the new DSM and then uh, we can talk about that. <laughs> right. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about um, neglect. So we spent a little bit of time, a lot of time talking about rejection. Um, but when it comes to neglect, what are the different types of neglect? And is there like a spectrum of neglect? All right, so that's a question for me. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, certainly there are different forms of neglect, but when we think about neglect generally, it's more so when an individual's affectional needs are consistently disregarded, ignored, invalidated, or unappreciated by another. And so when we think about those different types of, well, we think about that general example of neglect, like we see that neglect actually falls into six different categories, right? We have like physical neglect or deprivation of needs of of neglect. And and actually, I guess I should preface this by saying that this is typically a form of child abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly, and again, it's a consistent pattern of neglect. And so there's medical neglect where parents for, or sorry, I keep saying parents, these are caregivers for any number of reasons, fail to provide the adequate needs for their children medically. Uh, supervisory neglect in terms of the caregivers not necessarily uh, providing the um, mature and appropriate adult supervision for um, children. Environmental neglect, lack of housing, um, food, um, any of those um, supports that they need in order to take care of themselves that children need in order to take care of themselves, educational neglect, and then, of course, emotional neglect, which I think is more so um, the focus of our topic today. But these are all different forms of neglect that 
oftentimes we see overlap with each other and more times than not it happens you know certainly during the first couple of years of children's lives unfortunately when i know that um like you mentioned neglect neglect can be uh, become abusive at at some point specifically when it comes to children and this is just kind of a heads up for anybody that is listening trigger warning that we'll just be touching on um talking a little bit about child child abuse over the next few minutes so um just a trigger warning for anybody that needs it um but as as far as neglect when it comes to children well let's just say under the age of five or under the age of three because i think that's a point where kids are at a very vulnerable state where they may not be speaking they may not be able to move around on their own um you know they they can't really articulate what their needs are um verbally or even like you know physically so what does neglect look like in yeah in that early stage of life so um <clears throat> I think that's a really good question. You know, certainly for the for the trained and untrained observer, um, rejection and and neglect, especially during those early years, can look very much the same. You know, some of those examples that I, I gave in terms of how um, the irresponsible caregiver um, may deride or, or or chide their child unnecessarily so or consistently so. Um, but then what happens is that the caregiver starts to abandon their responsibility. And so when they start to abandon their responsibility, um, some of the more um, disturbing examples um, that I've seen, you know, certainly in terms of children um, under the age of three, not <clears throat> being changed um, frequently um, where they develop, you know, sores and other infections um, children where they've been malnourished under the age of three. So, you know, certainly during that age, um, for the first what, year and a half, they're typically, you know, uh, sustained with either breast milk or with like formula milk. And then certainly children from age year and a half to about three years old, they're typically eating like what soft foods and things like that, that mm -hmm. still require a great deal of reliance on a caregiver to feed them. They're not sufficient enough to, you know, start to certainly um, use their cognitive faculties to figure out where the food is and how to mix the food properly. So in cases, they rely a great deal on their caregivers. And, you know, in some of those extreme examples, we see where the caregiver has dereliction of duty, where the caregiver has uh, abandoned those responsibilities. And perhaps there's an older sibling who may not necessarily... Um, have all of the wherewithal, but try to do their best. You know, I think you, I think we've all read, you know, stories about, you know, cases like that where maybe the older sibling was seven years old, you know, and was feeding the baby. Well, I say baby, two-year-old, like hot dogs and things like that, things that they could um, access. How um, many examples, oftentimes more than not, we are see um, one of the first two things that happen is that the children stop going to school. Mm -hmm. And they're not attending doctor's appointments because, of course, both um, providers are neglected or mandated, um, excuse me, uh, mandated reporters. And being a mandated reporters, they are trained to observe, you know, some of those examples that I've described you know, early on, you know, especially in terms of a medical provider, because they have um, typically a record of the child's weight, 
high in terms of their uh, routines and practices and they more so more so than others and honestly the nurses who have the first contact with children they oftentimes notice these things sometimes more so before the doctor does you know or even like front desk staff you know they see those changes and so you know i think those are some of the more um, extreme examples um, in terms of like neglect that we see that often occur with children and and so when it comes to like these children that experience neglect early on in life how does that affect them you know as they get to like you know age elementary school age and then they go into middle school and and teenage years and you know all the way into adulthood like what are some of the long-term ramifications of that neglect early on I mean I think you know we start to see very normal um I think understandable responses in terms of where children may be squirming away like different food or different items for fear that um, they won't have sufficient food, um, perhaps to be socially, socially isolative either because a caregiver has made them be so or has forced them or socialized them to be so because of fear of others knowing um, what's going to happen or what I'm learning about what may happen. Other examples of where the more outward displays, well, I guess maybe let me go back to the internalized displays or uh, <clears throat> exhibition, exhibitions of some of the forms of neglect in terms of depression, where children are more so sad um, and they start to become very dejected easily. They tend to, um, any form of rejection, they tend to respond very um more so demonstratively, demonstratively so to it. So for example, if a child doesn't want to play with them, maybe they go to the corner, they start to cry immediately, or maybe they find a corner and they sit there, you know, so we see more extreme examples of that form of rejection, you know, as opposed to them, you'll find another child to play with. And is that something that as somebody grows up, especially maybe somebody as an adult starts to, maybe they didn't realize that they were being neglected. Cause I think sometimes when it comes to certain situations in your childhood, some people don't really recognize them for what they were or what they are until they're older. You know, maybe it's because they've gone to therapy or maybe they've watched like a specific movie and the same, you know, scenes that they lived through were, are being played out and they see the response there. Maybe it's just talking to different people, but um, you know, somebody that may have gone through these experiences when they're younger and now they're an adult, like how can, I don't want to say how can they get past it, but how can they dig deeper and live a full life even while having all of those experiences early on? You know, I think that really does go back to really allowing themselves to connect with their idealized self, you know, for those um, people who can sort of, can, can allow themselves to um, disconnect from some of their experiences in order to allow themselves to step into different challenges um, and to experience those, those um, or have those experiences and so that does take a lot of some courage for some. It does take a, a great deal of suspension of, of what their experiences are in the past. And so that can be extremely tough for some people. Um, sometimes I think having 
a friend or a supporter, you know, who can go with you. I can say if you're fearful of different um, social experience, of different social experiences, perhaps having a friend or a trusted other to come and accompany you, I think can help to soften some of the perceived um, challenges that we often encounter whenever we do feel neglected. And then, of course, in other cases, you know, certainly seeking out the help or um, of a mental um, health professional in order to help navigate some of these challenges, I think can be some important ways that we can help to um, try to step out, especially when we want to um, test some of those past experiences that we've had that involve neglect. Yeah, definitely. And I know we've talked about neglect in early stages of childhood, but I want to know a little bit more about what neglect looks like between two adults. So two people that, you know, are like fully functioning adults, they've got their own independent lives. Like um, what does neglect look like between, yeah, two adults? And, so, and right. So romantically or like, yeah. Right. So that, that's a good example. I think it even, you know, some of the Typical examples that we see during childhood, right? Because we talked about more extreme examples in terms of where there's this repeated pattern where one's needs are are abandoned, mm-hmm. right? And so here the other knows what the person's needs are, whether it's an emotional need, physical need, whatever, what have you, but repeatedly, and not necessarily you know, just for one, maybe a legitimate reason, those patterns are repeatedly neglected. You know, so let's say for um, a partner, say for two partners and one partner, um, one of their love languages certainly is touch, right? Let's just say, um, and so and so maybe come home after work, they really enjoy the opportunity to sit next to their uh, significant other, their loved one, and to talk about their day while holding hands or embracing. And so for the other, for the partner, while they recognize that that's important for the, their significant other, they don't necessarily attend to that. And so they reject um, oftentimes their significant other's um, need for touch. And so over time, because it's happened in a repeated pattern, the significant other starts to feel that their needs aren't important. And they start to certainly um, feel negatively toward their partner because their partner knows and recognizes what is important for them. And repeatedly, that partner has not responded in the way that they wanted them to or need them to. Wow. And I like that you referenced love languages because I think that is something that everybody that wants to be in some type of relationship with another person should know about or other people for some people. Um, I think that love, I know when I read about love languages, it kind of clicked, like a lot of things clicked in my head. And it's like, I I understand how my own love languages, uh, I think that was really important. It's like, how do I receive love, but also how do I give love? And then how does my partner do the same? How do they receive love? How do they give love? And understanding that sometimes things that are missed, some signs that are, um, that are missed on either side is because love languages differ. And they also, I feel like change over time. So having a good understanding about that and just constantly going back to that and checking in with your partner, especially especially if there are different love, love languages, 
is really important. So I love that you brought that up. Um, let's see. So Dr. Stevens, I know that, um, I know that we've talked a little bit about rejection and we've talked about uh, neglect, but I think that all in all, I, I don't know. I just really like this episode and these are definitely topics that I just hadn't even crossed my mind until you sent them over. So I really appreciate that. But I loved this. I love this conversation today for um, our listeners in the chat. Do you have any, um, do you have any questions for Dr. Stevens or for myself? If you do throw them in the question box for me um, and let's just, we can talk it out. We have a few minutes left. Um, um, while we're waiting for questions, there is one other quote that I just wanted to, sh to share, um, and it is kind of going back to rejection. This quote is by Monica Castillo. Um, it says, surviving and moving on from rejection is often a solo journey, perhaps one we're too ashamed to discuss publicly. So I wanted to throw that out there because part of today, just, you know, as you listen to this episode and hop back into the real world, when you take your headphones off, um, just, I think we should have a little less shame about talking about our rejection because us being able to talk about our rejection and talk about those experiences that may have stung in the moment, um, it ultimately opens the door for other people to talk about them. And it kind of reduces that stigma of rejection. So, um, yeah, just as you move forward with your day and if other people are talking about their rejection, like try to hold open space for them, try to be kind to them because it is hard to talk about the times where you felt rejected. Um, cause it's, it's scary and it's, you know, it's not a fun time in life, <laughs> but we all have some, have experienced some sort of rejection in life and just being able to talk about that and trying to discuss it more freely, you know, I think everybody will be better for it. I agree. Uh, okay, so we've got a question from Shantae. Um, let me pop this up on the screen. Um, so the question is, how would you specifically advise those who work with teens to learn through rejection? So for example, failing in school, relationships while establish, establishing their own self-resiliency? Oh, that's a good question, Shantae. Thank you. That is a good question. So I think in, in terms of working with teens, I think it's really important to um, affirm them, affirm them positively. I think, you know, certainly being a teen is a really tough time here, time, but especially now, you know, with social media and then all the other different uh, influences that um, teenagers endure. So definitely um, forming them positively, identifying the um, parts of their character that they also align with and finding ways in which they can um, um, exhibit that part of their character in different aspects of their life. 
right? So for example, let's say if they're really good with um, talking to people, I'm encouraging them to, you know, find people to reach out to, maybe to talk to, um, and ways in which, so, so they can see that that character that they um, align with is an area that others also tend to affirm for them, you know, and so identifying ways that people affirm that. So for example, let's say in that, um, so in that example that I just gave, where you're encouraging the child or the teen in this case to um, talk to, you know, certainly people, maybe to family members. And the fact that other family members respond to them positively, I think is a way in which we affirm them, certainly in the moment, but also where we remind them that they are affirmed. And so by using that, we certainly build certainly their possible selves in terms of how they go about seeing themselves. And so we help them in order to use that in their experiences with the rejection. So let's say if, you know, if they're in class um, and they receive um, a bad grade on a test or, or what have you, and so where they're able to certainly think about ways in which they, um, um, I'm sorry, just pause for a second. I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> It's okay. I think I think what what I'm taking from what you're saying is really trying to highlight the parts of their personality that they perceive as positive and that you know potentially are positive in general. So maybe they're not doing well in school, but maybe they are great leaders and they just haven't figured out a way to tap into that. Um, maybe they are really kind people and like great artists, and that's not something that's usually reflected in how we grade schools mm-hmm. or grade students usually and trying to find ways to show them that although there is rejection taking place, that there are a lot of wonderful things about them. Um, and also I think just throwing this out there, I know you mentioned earlier, just looking at the fact that there are a lot of factors that, um, that affect rejection. And so you know, are they failing in school because of their just lack of effort? Or are they failing in school because they're like working a full-time job and taking care of their siblings? And maybe they have like a learning disability that they haven't quite figured out how to overcome. And like, even though they're not doing well in school, they are actually working hard. So how to channel that um, and how to just, I think as teenagers, and this is just going back to myself as a teenager, um, like you said, just affirming them and reminding them that they're worthy, even though thing, you know, they may be experiencing rejection. Cause I think sometimes, um, it's funny. I, I, one of the coffee shops I go to right around like 3 PM, a bunch of high school students usually like will storm in there. But some of the kids that work at the cafe are recently graduated from the high school. And one of the, one of the girls that always works there. I usually kind of head out once like the chaos comes in. (laughs) But one of the girls, one of the baristas there, uh, I think she's probably 20 years old, but um, she's, she's like a very artsy, um, artsy person and like very into music. And we were just talking one day and she mentioned how she was like, just not good at school. She just really struggled at school. And, um, She's like for like the next year after she left high school, she felt terrible because 
all these years, all the only message she heard was that you're failing, you're doing terrible, do better, you're not smart enough. She's like, I really felt stupid when I left and I felt like I just wasn't worth anything because my grades didn't reflect that I was worth anything. And she's like, I wish that we wouldn't tie a student's worth so much into the grades that they're getting and understand that they're like a whole complete person outside of of the classroom and outside of this, you know, this A or B or F or whatever they've gotten on this last project. So that was super interesting. And then I learned shortly after that, that the high school that she went to was so terrible that it shut down. So that's another part of like feeling rejection, but not, but under uh, realizing afterwards that there were more factors going on. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. who knows, maybe she would have thrived at a different school. Maybe she would have thrived under different mm -hmm. teachers. Um, but yeah, I think, I love that question though, Shante. Thank you. Um, it looks like we have one more question. So we'll answer one more and then we'll wrap up. Um, thank you ladies for being so supportive today. I love y'all. Um, so we have another question from, oops, there we go. Um, what can be done to mitigate the fear of rejection? Um, it, it, that is a hard question since that there's no right answer because I don't think there's necessarily one. I don't necessarily think that there's a way to mitigate the fear of rejection because we're going to experience rejection, period. I think it's a normal, healthy experience. It's important for us to experience rejection because rejection helps us to, you know, like I keep talking about possible selves, possible, possible selves doesn't necessarily exist, you know, as this sort of uh, ambiguous form. Like we have to create some boundary in terms of what our possible selves are, right? And so the negative experiences, or in this case, the rejection tells us what <laughs> our boundaries are, the things that we're not capable of doing, things maybe that we're maybe good at, but we don't want to do, things that are people that we socialize with, uh, well, people that we don't necessarily socialize with well. So, you know, in terms of trying to prevent um, the emotional um, experience of, of rejection, I wouldn't necessarily encourage that because I think it's important and healthy for us to experience rejection and experience the, the um, emotional components associated with it. Now, in terms of like the prolonged forms of, of, of rejection or the emotional components of rejection, Definitely, you know, I think that it's important for us to, again, you know, like use some of those strategies that we've talked about a little bit earlier in terms of identifying with the things that we do really well, in terms of surrounding ourselves with others who are supportive, people who we feel and know are supportive, in terms of helping us to see ourselves in ways that are difficult for us to experience ourselves, especially when we're in the throes of rejection, and then also allowing ourselves to try through successful successive approximations to go through different experiences where we're experiencing many successes and allowing bigger and bigger and bigger or greater and greater exposure to um, different situations that expose us to different degrees of risk where, you know, that um, ultimate rejection or, or the experience that represents the ultimate rejection may be, you know, at the end, but it more so like we're conditioning ourselves to um, one, normalize the rejection but also to reduce the distress that's associated with the projection in the experience. Right. So not trying to get rid of the fear of rejection, but 
being more used to the reaction after the reaction the rejection right right okay. and then finding ways to to mitigate the prolonged emotional um or effective component of rejection okay especially if it tends to interfere with our ability to do things right definitely love that and i love this episode um thank you so much uh to you dr stevens you're amazing as usual um I did want to give you some uh, some time at the end to I don't know if you're if you're still taking um, new patients, but if somebody listens to the podcast and is interested in maybe reaching out for some sessions, um, where can they reach you and where should they? Um, yeah, how can they how can they get in touch with you? So, thank you for that invitation. You know, certainly I am accepting uh, patients more so adults right now. Um, and of course they have to be located in the state of Florida because that's where I am located um, and licensed uh, to provide services. So you can always reach me at utpcpa um, at utpcpa.com. Actually, let me say that again, utpcaa at utpcpa.com. And that's my um, confidential um, secure email, HIPAA compliant email where um I'm able to certainly converse with uh, individuals who might be interested in receiving psychotherapy. Awesome. So um, if you didn't get that email, I will uh, make sure to put it in the description. If you are interested to reaching out to Dr. Stevens for some sessions. Um, Alternately, I know that we've had um, people reach out or I've kind of worked with different people that have recorded with the podcast that are looking for um, advocates, mental health advocates, particularly um, psychologists, if you're interested with connecting with Dr. Stevens, um, her information will be in the description. Reach out to her. She's amazing, as you guys can see. Um, but thank you, Dr. Stevens, for joining us for another episode. Thank you to our live viewers, our exclusive live viewers. I appreciate you guys. Um, yeah, thank you to everybody that's listening for joining for another episode. We've got some exciting things happening this year. So make sure if you're not following us already, follow us on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety too. Um, Over the next couple of months, we'll be rolling out some new exciting things, um, trying to build the community and trying to create um, intimate spaces where we can all come together, talk about our mental health, learn about our mental health and just support each other. So yeah, thank you to everyone. And we'll see you guys on the next episode. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. No matter where you are in the world, I really appreciate your support. See you again on the next episode, but until then, follow us on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 and on Twitter at Anxious Black Girls. That's Anxious BLK Girls. And remember, just because you're struggling doesn't mean you have to struggle in silence. The more we talk about it, the more we heal.